0: It seemed like every client that walked in the door figured that they were going to be able to sell more of whatever their product was, as long as we could put sunglasses and tennis shoes and white gloves on it and have it dance around a little bit.
1: This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Before stepping into the role of educator, Larry Baffia was an animator with a love for stop motion. His passion for the form eventually landed him at Will Vinton Studios, working on such iconic commercials as the California Raisins. Larry eventually made the move to feature films, but after his first project was cut short, he found himself at Pacific Data Images, where he was at the forefront of a new era of animation, CG. We recently spoke with Larry about his career in the animation industry, his second career in education, as well as his next film. Here's my conversation with Larry Baffia. So I I kind of wanted to start, you you mentioned it when we talked before, but I thought maybe we'd start by talking a little bit about, you know, where you grew up. You grew up in Chicago.
0: Uh, Yes, I, I grew up in Chicago on the west side of Chicago on 18th Street And um, I went to Columbia College in Chicago, um, where I started studying film and animation.
1: So was animation, like in film, were they always a passion of yours? Did you always know that you were going to kind of go into that career trajectory?
0: Well, it was interesting because I went through a number of things. You know, when I was in high school, I was thinking about architecture. And then I got interested in drawing and painting uh, and I realized eventually, uh, because then I bought a, a 35 millimeter camera and started taking pictures, you know, walking around Chicago. And I liked the idea of telling stories through images. And I realized that one of the strongest vehicles for that was animation. And so by the time I got to Columbia, I was ready to jump right into animation.
1: So I'm curious, why animation and not, you know, regular filmmaking?
0: Uh, I always had a penchant for uh, miniatures. You know, I, I uh, liked building model trains and model cars and things like that. In fact, I still putter around with some of those things. Um, and just the idea of, of building these miniature worlds that would have a story behind it uh, was very, very appealing.
1: So you go to Columbia College, and was it always going to be, um, like, I know you started kind of in claymation. Was that always the plan, or did you just kind of land on that through, Um, you know, your passions?
0: I kind of landed on it, you know. um, A lot of the animation training was very traditional. In fact, the first class I had was basically how to plot out camera moves for an Oxbury animation stand and doing traditional cell animation and things like that. Um, But uh, then along came a fellow by the name of Art Pearson, who became an animation instructor at Columbia. And he actually owned a claymation studio up in Evanston, Illinois, called Crocus Productions. And I got very, very interested in that. In fact, I got hired while I was still in school to be uh, basically the runner for the studio. So I would be taking film down to the lab and going to get art supplies and things like that. And when there wasn't anything for me to do as a runner, I'd spend time in the shop and started help uh, helping to build props and sets and Oh, uh, you know, uh, making molds for characters and things like that. And then eventually I got a shot at animating as well.
1: Well, that kind of fits into your passion for miniatures too, right? All of a sudden you're building these intricate sets and very small pieces for a career.
0: Yeah. Uh, So so it was a blast, you know. I I was able to apply something I was very passionate about um, to actually making some money.
1: So when you started there working, kind of basically doing all the odd jobs, when you actually started directing, was that something that you really had a passion for as well?
0: Uh, That kind of evolved. You know, I I really didn't start directing until um, probably mid-career at at Mm -hmm. Will Vinton Studios in Portland. I I went through a a number of other um, animation gigs Uh, Because eventually I moved out to California and um, I, I ended up in San Francisco first. And I went around and I talked to everybody I could find in the phone book that was attached to animation. And when they saw that I did claymation on my reel, because that was basically my reel at that point, was a 16 millimeter reel with a bunch of shots from Crocus. They kept on saying, you know, you should go down to L.A. and talk to Gene Warren. And it's like, but I live here in San Francisco. And, and they finally got to the point where I did indeed go down to L.A. and um, went to Gene's studio, which was called Excelsior Pictures uh, on La Brea Boulevard. And Gene was one of George Powell's uh, puppetoon animators mm-hmm. in the 40s. And his studio kind of specialized in practical effects, uh, so they did all all sorts of crazy things, similar to like seeing the Star Wars folks, you know, blowing up things in the parking lot in San Rafael when they were still doing practical effects. So we did a lot of that stuff uh, for commercials. And um, there was also a lot of um, stop motion animation that was going on for the television uh, series Land of the Lost. Mm. And so I, I, was basically on the crew that did repairs on the sets for that. And in the meantime, you know, somewhere else in the studio, we would be doing some practical effects. And then in the loft above the wood shop, there was a guy that was animating the Pillsbury Doughboy in stop motion. So uh, I learned a lot of interesting techniques there. And uh, it kind of definitely kind of got me hooked on the idea of staying sort of in the practical and stop motion realm. Um, And, you know, I went back up to San Francisco and worked a little bit at Colossal Pictures when that was first starting out. And uh, Gary Gutierrez, who was one of the founders, he was doing a lot of stop motion animation for um, the FM station KSAN. And he also had a connection with the Grateful Dead. So he did the uh, the stop-motion intro to the Grateful Dead movie. And so I, I assisted him on a few things there. But then I heard about Will Vinton's studio up in Portland, and I had always admired the, uh, the film Closed Mondays that Will and Bob Gardner won for, uh, an Academy Award for. But I had never had any idea, you know, where the studio existed. So I finally found that out, and um, on a vacation trip up to Portland, uh, I dropped in on both studios. I, I met with Bob Gardner and then eventually with Will Vinton, and um, it took a while before I ended up getting a, a job with Will, but that was when the the California Raisins caught on, and they had just gotten um, four specials from for CBS TV, and uh, naturally... CBS wanted the California Raisins involved. So uh, a bunch of us got hired for what Will was calling his new short film division. And so, you know, the the regulars were working on all of the commercials and uh, the possibility of any features or what have you, because they had done The Adventures of Mark Twain. Um, and we came in as apprentices. It really didn't matter how much experience you had. We all got hired as apprentices to work on the first show, which was a claymation Christmas. And so we were all making minimum wages and putting together this whole show. And we all got the anime in it on and all. And naturally there was a, a sequence with the raisins in there and, um, it won the Emmy as best animated show for, I think it was 1988. Um, and so I stuck around with that studio for quite a while, and, and and you know worked on Meet the Raisins, which was the next show, and and I was I was the lead on um, one of the sequence one of the first sequences out of the blocks. It, w- it was at the beginning of the show, and and um, folks like Amat Ertegan, who was. Uh, basically allowing Will to use most of his Atlantic Records collections of all of the R&B songs. Uh, He was very interested in seeing how we were going to handle the California Raisins uh, dealing with some of his uh, intellectual property. And so I was involved in animating the song Get a Job, which took place, uh, basically, it was a spoof on Ben-Hur and the slave ship. So all of the Raisins were basically rowing away as um they started singing get a job basically
1: so you're up there you're all apprentices all of a sudden you win an emmy does that kind of change the dynamic of your role within the studio
0: uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, there was a lot more trust, obviously, and a lot more commercials were coming in because, as the raisins were getting more popular, it seemed like every client that walked in the door figured that they were going to be able to sell more of whatever their product was as long as we could put sunglasses and tennis shoes and white gloves on it and have it dance around a little bit. so uh, we had to come up with all kinds of interesting alternatives to convince them that you know there are all sorts of ways to do commercials and not necessarily copy this. Uh, but what also happened was because of this influx of animators, and and there were there were people that were coming out of Cal Arts, um, especially that were much more interested in multimedia. And up and uh, up until that point, everything in the studio and anything that happened on a set or a character or whatever, was either covered in clay or made out of Sculpey. So it, it definitely, the entire thing had a clay look. But once um, we started getting through some of these features, there were all sorts of suggestions as to, you know, can we use Cardboard cutouts and, um, you know, uh, incorporating uh, 2D effects and using beam splitters and doing all kinds of crazy 2D things off to the side, like actually adding in-camera effects of smoke and clouds or what have you um, while you're animating on a, a 3D set. So at that point, yeah, there was a lot more freedom And then eventually um, David Daniels showed up with um, a couple of Commodore Amiga computers and um, we started playing around with Lightwave and we eventually started also incorporating some CG uh, elements and then eventually um, actually made some CG commercials as well. So we did some stuff for Chips Ahoy, which was a hybrid spot. It was half stop motion and half CG um, and then eventually moved into um, doing some tests for the M&M's. And that's how Wilmington Studios ended up doing the CG M&M's commercials.
1: Oh, wow. So, I mean, things seem to be going really well at Wilton uh, Studios. So what prompted you to leave? What was sort of the next step in your career?
0: Well, you know, while I was there, I, I did get a chance to start directing some pieces. And, I, you know, it's the, sort of the catch-22 when you want to direct. It's like, where's your director's reel? Well, I don't have a director's reel because I haven't been allowed to direct anything. Uh, and so um, I had to do some pro bono work. And uh, the California Museum of Science and Industry in L.A. was doing uh, trying to do an ecology exhibit. And it was as The Simpsons were getting very popular, and they wanted to do a family called the Globeheads. So Mm -hmm. I ended up uh, developing this little family where uh, if one of the family members ever did something that really wasn't good for the environment, you know, like um, changing your oil and letting it drain into, you know, the, the storm drain... Um, you'd get caught out by the rest of the family and be called a wastehead, and your head would morph from this blue globe head to a, a yellow blockhead. So that was the start of my director's reel, and, and then eventually um, I, I did a couple other pieces at Vinton's. Um, but just about then is when um, a few of the folks from the studio went down to L.A. because um, there was talk of Tim Burton doing... Uh, Mars Attacks, with the Martians being stop-motion characters, and he wanted it to be an homage to Ray Harryhausen. And so at one point, I got a call from um, a friend of mine who was our stage manager at Vinton's, and he went down and he was on the show. And um, I walked into an interview with Barry Purves, and about three hours later, uh, I was basically on the team, and so, you know, we walked onto an empty stage, and it was basically and one of these days we we will all be animating Martians here. Um, and so it was kind of interesting because you know we were down at uh, just off of the Warner Hollywood Studios um, in a uh, a space that had been used for visual effects before. In fact, the last thing that was shot there because it was they had a huge rear projection screen and it was the, uh, the train crash for the fugitive film. And it would, it was an interesting place to be in because there was that history. And as the guy was moving out with all of his props that he basically had all sorts of stuff um, as far as like model airplanes and uh, interiors of airplanes and things like that, where they shot all kinds of practical effects. But we realized that one half, uh, there were two stages and and one half of the studio had this wooden floor. And we were really concerned that if we were going to be doing stop motion Martians that had to be composited um, onto live action film, that, you know, it really had to be pretty rock steady. And we found a hatch door that was on the wooden floor of this studio. And we got brave one day and decided to take a look at what was going on down there just to see what kind of support was there. And um, all of a sudden, we saw all of this mosaic tile. And as it turns out, it was um, Mary Pickford's swimming pool. It was actually her studio um, when she was still alive in Hollywood. So uh, it was interesting to be involved in a legacy there. So we kept on going with that. Um, But then um, the producers kind of got nervous and uh, they thought the overhead was going to be way too much for a feature film. Uh, You know, they were starting to line up all of these Hollywood stars. It was was the time when there was, you know, it was like the disaster movies where on the movie poster, you'd have a whole slew of pictures of stars that did cameos and, and things like that. Um, and they were going to spend a lot of money on that, and stop-motion was starting to sound really expensive and taking a really long time. And they, they actually started doing some tests in CG, and that's when we learned that basically um, the film production for the Martians was going to be done uh, in CG at ILM. So we we sort of uh, you know finished out what was essentially a pre-visualization of what the Martians could be. And um, all of a sudden it was like, hmm, I'm not on the show anymore.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, I was going to ask something because clearly you were kind of in a good place when you were at Vinton and you were starting to direct stuff, which just sounds like something that you really wanted to do. And it seems like it was maybe a little bit of a a gamble to go on this project to begin with.
0: Absolutely. Big time. I mean, it was it was a huge risk. And, you know, I, I thought it through and. Two things were a deciding factor. you know it's like I really appreciated what Tim had done with Nightmare before Christmas with you know with Henry Selick and um, you know and, and and just his entire quirky style and the idea of, of doing Mars attacks, I knew it was going to be a you know a wacky film, and, I, and at that point, I really wanted it to, to be on a feature and then um, there was also that idea of it being you know an homage to Ray Harryhausen who is definitely one of my heroes and um i met the the crew from manchester you know uh, McKinnon and, and sanders they, they for me they they make some of the finest puppets in the world it was it was the the, the best puppet that i've ever animated in my career And I always admired the work of uh, Barry Purves, and I was going to work directly with him. And he and I were the two animators that were doing tests. You know, we would do seven or eight seconds of animation tests every day and talk about them. And so it was an amazing experience. And um, I really felt that um, I grew as an animator there. And so it was very different than kind of just working to please clients and kind of cranking out the same stuff all the time and taking some chances so you know even though we didn't get to do the movie I think it, it was it was a good payoff and um, I would probably do the same thing again
1: so where did you go from there all of a sudden you you're kind of at a dream job and it doesn't go the way you exactly planned so what's the next step because you you work you, you stay stayed kind of working in uh, I say air quotes Hollywood
0: well um you know when when we were closing up um the producers on the show they liked my work and all and um they they knew that i had a background in doing some cg animation so they actually referred me up to ilm uh to see if i wanted to continue on the show as a cg animator
1: Mm.
0: so When I got up to San Francisco Bay Area, um, you know, there were basically four studios that were really going strong. Well, I could probably say five studios, but the big ones were ILM and Pixar and Phil Tippett and PDI. And so, um, you know, I started out where I I went through um, a serious interview with ILM and I actually received an offer and all. But while I was in the Bay Area, I also opt into um, to PDI. Uh, and it was mainly because there, there was a fellow that worked at Vinton's at one point um, for a summer or so. And he ended up as an animator at PDI. So I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. And I, I liked the short films that they were doing at the time as well. Uh, I had no idea that they were doing all of the crazy motion graphics as well. You know, all of the... Sunday night movies and movie of the week and all of the ESPN sports logos and all that, you know, they, they were basically the Kings of uh, the motion graphics for that. Mm. Uh, and that's what supported all of the the short film work. So I decided to talk to them and, and, you know, I'm, I'm met up with the animation group and it was a fairly small group at the time. Uh, it was uh, led by Raman Wee and uh, Tim Johnson. And, you know, we had a great conversation and everything. And I, I just um, immediately got a good feeling for the culture of the studio. So, um, I decided to take a chance on them. And I, I, I thought I was joining this studio that at the time was, I think about 50 or 60 people it might, might've been a little more than that, you know, cause people were coming and going and, um, I went back up to Portland, and you know, I was preparing to move back down to um, the Bay Area. And when I when I got down to Palo Alto on a Friday, I decided to go over to the the studio because it, I had interviewed in Sunnyvale. But in the meantime, they moved into uh, a building somewhere in Palo Alto. And uh, I just wanted to kind of time out my commute and make sure I was going to show up on my first day of work on time and not get stuck in traffic and everything. So I decided to wander over there on a, a, a Friday, right around lunchtime. And I arrived at the, at the building that PDI was in uh, and walked in expecting to be in a lobby where I would have to look up what floor they were on. And it turned out that they were in the entire building, which seemed pretty weird to me because it was you know a three-story building and all and uh the receptionist said hey you know you're you're just in time they're finishing up the friday film show and then there's going to be a barbecue and usually um sometime either before or after the barbecue carl goes up on the rooftop and uh he throws an old piece of equipment off the side into the parking lot and basically you know destroys old uh hard drives and things like that so you're in for a treat. And so th- that, was, that was my introduction. And right after that, um, the uh, HR recruiter that I had worked with um, to get the gig, she pulled me aside and she took me up to the third floor, which was completely empty. Uh, well, the, Carl Rosendahl had an office in the corner. And then there was a ping-pong table in a, a boom box. But other than that, the place was pretty well deserted. And that's where she was able to finally tell me that they signed a deal with DreamWorks to do three feature films. And that this entire space that I was looking at would soon be the story department. And I was kind of thinking, right, what, what, what have I just walked into? <laughs> And so it was pretty interesting, so you know i got I got in on the ground floor of when they were all trying to figure out how to make these features because at the time you know only Toy Story was out there, so uh, it was a completely new field basically uh, but in the meantime, they were still doing uh, visual effects and commercials, so I was able to um, do some work and went through a really great mentorship uh, with Richard Chung, one of the founders of PDI, because uh, he was involved in a lot of the uh, the development work and uh, the programming for all of the tools at, at PDI because everything was proprietary. There would, they really weren't using anything off the shelf. So uh, you basically had to learn everything. Um, and so I was able to do some animation work for him for uh, Batman and Robin and... You know, uh, we were doing a whole bunch of Doughboy commercials and um, halls, the Hall's Penguins and Scrubbing Bubbles and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. But it it really allowed me to um, learn and evolve with the animation tools that were being developed. Uh, and so I, I was sort of walking in on the ground floor of, you know, what animators expect to see these days with you know all of the tools being there but when we first started animating there wasn't even a curve editor Um, basically the all of the old timers at PDI would uh, be able to animate in a spreadsheet so they would actually you know be looking at the screen and they would see um, their character and the character needed to raise an arm so they'd scroll down to You know, the node on the spreadsheet that that said right elbow and go to the frame and type in a value and see if that was the right angle of the rotation for that frame, Uh, which I thought was like super crazy because I'm trying to imagine the motion curve in my head was going to be completely new. And fortunately, because the feature film was coming on, they were working uh, really hard to get the curve editor in place. And sure enough, um, that that was a a big moment at PDI when MCTV was introduced. So it's motion curve TV, essentially. Um, so that it was a lot of fun because uh, you were also. I mean, I, I, I was working with a lot of people that I knew that were much, much smarter than me, as as far as being able to develop technical tools. And so it was this collaboration um, between an artist that knew they needed certain things to create these images, and someone that was, you know, looking at a, blank, a blinking cursor and wanting to create these tools for the person. So it was a great relationship to be able to go back and forth and, and develop these things.
1: As you're on kind of on the forefront of developing all these new tools that, you know, eventually become what we have today. I'm curious if at any point you kind of mourned the loss of, you know, the old the old stop motion and, and the fact that you were moving further, further away from your original passion of, you know, stop motion inclination.
0: Yeah, and it it did occur to me quite a bit, especially since, you know, across the bay at Phil Tippett's, uh, he was still kind of messing around with the idea of having like an animation model that you could move around and, uh, you know, it it was all wired up to the computer so that you you could actually manipulate the CG model through um, a stop-motion model. And I thought that was pretty interesting as well. But, yeah, it's always you know, it was always in the back of my mind of, of wanting to get back into stop motion. But, you know, as an individual, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to, you know, just pull off any kind of films on your own. Um, And you you pretty much need some studio assistance there. But, um, you know, once again, I, I, I got so involved with, with the culture at PDI and um, I was given a, a lot of freedom there. I, 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 uh, you know, eventually followed Richard Chung to what uh, he developed as CAFE, which was commercial and film effects, uh, because once they got the the pipeline going for the film and, um, you know, I, I animated on one of the first sequences for the film while I was also helping Richard with some of the film effects and commercial stuff um, he asked me if I wanted to join CAFE and and be one of the animation directors. And so I knew this was going to be an opportunity for me because, you know, there, I knew there was going to be a bit of a waiting line uh, outside of Jeffrey Katzenberg's office to try and get, you know, a directing gig uh, on one of the DreamWorks films. And so I, I saw that as an opportunity and, um, had a great five years with them of, of doing all sorts of stuff. You know, we went from sort of the pot boiler commercials to eventually moving up to doing things for Coca-Cola and Intel and um, also doing some pretty interesting film work as well. So once again, it just sort of expanded the kind of things that I could work on in animation. And, and it also uh, allowed me to think more about some of those digital solutions that, that, had to come with with some of the wicked problems in the early days of CG
1: so I mean clearly you were having uh, a really great like PDI was a really great career move for you and you were doing really well there' doing some really interesting cutting edge things what, wh- why did you leave and where did you go after that?
0: uh uh-huh. well um, there was this thing called 9 eleven that happened. Mm. and um we were really on a roll um and in fact on nine ten, um i w- went down to los angeles and we were going to do a mix for several uh intel commercials and um we had a you know a a, a happy agency from new york and uh everything was going swimmingly and we wake up the next morning and uh you know We're watching planes going into towers instead of doing a sound mix. Um, That's when things kind of changed at PDI. You know, a lot of the clients got very shaky, and and a lot of them were East Coast clients. And the agencies weren't interested in people traveling, and they started relying more on um, some of the resources that they could find in New York and Boston and all. Um, and so some of the work started to dry up a bit. And at the point, too, um, uh, Jeffrey was getting more and more interested in making the the features successful. And this is when Shrek was coming online and all. And um, more and more of my regular crew was getting poached to, to work on the, the feature as well. Uh, so at a certain point, you know, we basically just got the word that they they were going to close down cafe. And so uh, with my producer, we had to basically give the news to all of our clients uh, that, you know, within, you know, a couple of months or so, we're going to be shutting down and, um, you know, we, we'd love to help you out, but obviously you're probably going to need to look for a new shop. Well, there were a couple of clients that, wanted to continue. And um, that's when uh, Mary Maffay and I decided that uh, maybe we can continue. And so um, we, did, we um, opened up our own little company called Blam Animation and started collaborating with Radium, a visual effects house in San Francisco, and kept going with some of the commercials. But, um, you know, to try and sustain a business like that, I found myself uh, more in the boardroom than in front of a computer or a storyboard or, uh, you know, an editing suite as I was trying to drum up the next project to keep all of my animators happy and all. And um, I really wasn't that interested in it. You know, it, that, I I didn't want to be the sales guy. I, I would much rather be the creative And so I was getting a little discouraged there. Uh, But lo and behold, that's exactly when um, I got into conversation with the Vancouver Film School, as they were uh, starting to introduce people from the industry to come in and um, basically get all of their departments up, up to speed with the current industry standards. And so um, I was invited to come in and be the department head for 3D animation and visual effects. And then eventually I also um, was the department head for the Maya character animation group and the classical animation program as well. So I did five years there and never never thought i was going to be a teacher but uh i'd have to say that uh it it was an interesting pivot and one that i still enjoy to this day
1: well i was going to ask about that because I mean, clearly you just said you were not much you're not into the sales pitch does does education give you the the room to be creative like you like to be and hands on uh in a
0: way yes you know it's um it, it, it's interesting collaborating with students, especially on creative projects. And um, there are always some pleasant surprises of directions that they might go in that you hadn't thought of. But at the same time, um, you know, with, with a, a boatload of experience, you can also kind of uh, help them avoid some of the blind alleys as well. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of creativity in that. And also, you know, just the idea of of coming in and um, taking a look at a curriculum and sort of molding it based on seeing how, you know, several studios uh, were, were basically, you know, fashioning their pipelines those days. And at the time, you know um, – Someone coming out of BFS basically would be aspiring to come across the uh, Burrard Bridge and work at Mainframe. And the challenge that was presented to me when I was interviewing with the school was, uh, when are we going to be able to get some people into Pixar or DreamWorks? You know, because this is where those animators are aspiring to go. And um, so, so that was sort of my challenge. And in the first two years, um, we worked really hard to get the curriculum and everybody, you know, getting used to dailies and getting their portfolios to the point where we, uh, we felt really comfortable being able to encourage people to apply to places like that. And sure enough, we ended up getting some animators into Pixar. So there's a bit of a reward there.
1: Oh, for sure. And I, I'm I'm curious because I mean you've seen basically the whole gamut of of the how the industry has changed over the years. You saw it go from like the old traditional methods to computer uh to CG. And I'm curious over the course of that career and that trajectory, what for you was kind of like the most exciting uh, aspect of that? Like, was there a tool or something specific that like really made you think, okay, this is going to change the industry or this is something really neat that, you know, is going to have a big effect on how things are done?
0: You know, I, I, I think it was more a change in the attitude of some people more than a tool, you know, um, for the longest time working with clients, to uh to to make a commercial sometimes he got a little leery that there were folks that were expecting to do it in animation because it was fashionable and you know uh, they would be able to do the cocktail party talk of oh yes we're doing a cgi commercial as well you know? And um, eventually, I I think the trust in us being storytellers and allowing us to show them what the animation could do really kind of changed the industry as well. And I think it's empowered a lot more people to be able to fund their careers by, by doing some creative things and then being able to turn that over to their personal projects. Uh, so the idea of kind of being in two camps where you can do some commercial work but at the same time you know you now have these these tools that are highly accessible to most everyone um, I, I think that's a real game changer you know as I said before you know the idea of having to rely on a studio is is kind of daunting when you want to make your own personal project unless you, you know you're a name animator or director.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm curious because I think this might tie into, you know, the fact that you've always been, you come across as somebody who's always been a lifelong learner and kind of uh, chopping at the bit to to find out about the next new thing. But, I mean, you've long been a, a supporter and very involved with, like, the CG community, both with Spark and with SIGGRAPH. And I'm curious how, like, why why are those connections important to you and why do you keep investing your time and effort in in staying so connected to the community?
0: Well, you know, as I said, I learned at at BDI that um, I was working with a lot of people that were probably a lot smarter than me as far as being able to develop some of these things. And um, I felt like from the creative side, I had a lot of things to offer as well. And so just sort of having that symbiotic relationship has always been a driving factor for me. And, um, just seeing, you know, once again, different ways of being able to tell stories, you know, right now I'm working on a piece and, um, I've gone through all sorts of phases of thinking about it as a stop motion piece and thinking about it as a CG piece And now I'm actually thinking about the engines that are being used for VR and the ability uh, to roam around in an environment and sort of take in a story in in that regard. Uh, I think that's one of the things that uh, SIGGRAPH has allowed me to sort of explore through other people's work and and understand the power of that medium. So... um, It's it's always an eye opener, and I I think it just keeps you fresh and really makes you think about how you can apply your work in different ways.
1: Can you talk a little bit about this? Uh, You know, you, you say that you've been working on this project, and I'm kind of curious about, you know, one, where do you find the time, and two, how do you stay creative? Like with everything that you do, like what what's your process for kind of, you know, when you start thinking about a new project? how how do you approach that? Does it start with just like an idea that you jot down some notes? Do you kind of sit on it for a while? And how does it sort of start to develop? Well,
0: sometimes I sit on it way too long. <laughs> uh, and this one I have been sitting on for a, a, quite a while. Um, and it's actually um, a short story that was written by a fellow that grew up in the same neighborhood as myself. And I, I was taken aback immediately because when I started reading the story, it actually takes place on my street. And as you know, when when you're reading a short story, the the mind's eye starts creating all of these different visuals. Um, And these were just so vivid that uh, I just felt that somehow I've got to get this onto some sort of screen so i've been working through all sorts of of different notes on it and like i said i've also been looking at all sorts of different approaches because it, and it's actually the first time i've ever tried to do an adaptation as a screenplay from a uh, a short story so you know there there's a bit of a learning curve there as as and going back and forth as far as really breaking down, you know, what's essential to the story. And fortunately, I've I've had some discussions with the author as well. And I think we're we're fairly like-minded on what what is the essence of the story and what he was really trying to to say in it. So I I basically had his confidence. Um, He wasn't sure how it was going to work in animation because he really didn't have any background there. And so that's sort of what's left to me and what the challenge is now is to sort of make good on that promise that I was, I'll, I'll stay true to the essence.
1: I'm curious, cause we talked a little bit uh, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, how difficult it can be to create and, and, and make something on your own. Does that scare you at all? Or do you feel comfortable that, you know, you have the tools and the knowledge to, to get this off the ground by yourself?
0: I don't think I'll I'll eventually just be working in a vacuum. You know, I'm way too much of a collaborator for that. Uh, I'll probably, and in fact, I'm already talking to a few folks that are interested in participating in one way or another on the piece. And I I enjoy that energy as well. And I I think um, those sorts of collaborations also help the piece in a lot of ways, you know, because... um, I'll be working with some very different perspectives there rather than being in a vacuum.
1: I'm curious, is that something that you encourage your students to do as well to, to sort of step outside of their comfort zone and work with others that, you know, may, may bring something else to the table?
0: Well, that's, that's actually uh, a big part of the curriculum at MDM. You know, everything is um, team-based learning and, um, You know, you start by getting tossed into the deep end of the pool and uh, learn. And this is where programmers learn how to work with artists and they all learn how to work with project managers and UX designers and things like that. And for a lot of people, you know, if you're going through art school or animation school, you're sitting around with a bunch of other animators or other designers or what have you. And it's always a, a bit of a shock to the system when they step into a team and um, realize that there are all these different skill sets and, you know, people have various things that they can offer to the project. And, and for me, it's, it's one of the exciting uh, pieces of, of the whole puzzle, you know, uh, is, is finding that chemistry and, and how people work together
1: you've had such a, a an interesting and varied career and you've seen and and learned so much i'm curious what you would say is the most important thing or yeah the most important thing that you learned over the course of your career that you like to share with maybe students as maybe a guide or something to look out for
0: <laughs> i've offered advice to a lot of students through the years whether they're trying to get an animation gig or visual effects or um, going into any of the industries that, that serve digital media and um, you know it's you got to go in and, and just rely on honesty you know just uh, be yourself um, there are so many people that, that try to over emulate like at the film school you know the, the 3D modelers they would all want to build whatever character was popular on the screen at that point, you know? So if it was a Spider-Man or the Hulk, you'd have to remind them, you realize if you're going to be sending in this model to the studio, the person that made the real model is going to be looking at your piece. And so you're, you're setting yourself up for a challenge that may not exactly be apples to apples. And in fact, what the studios are really looking for are people that are really good problem solvers. And, you know, you'll probably be asked to create something that someone has never seen before. And the last thing you want to do is kind of constrain yourself to one particular technique or style. And um, you got to find that, that flexibility and you can only find it through the truth and being honest with yourself as to, um, where do you think these things should go?
1: Any regrets?
0: Um not enough time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's as you know, you know, filmmaking and animation and even education, it just um it's a long haul. There's no silver bullet, there's no uh switch that you can flip and all of a sudden, you know, it's a big success and it's it's a huge journey, but at the same time, you know, it's uh, you learn so much about life and um, the others that you meet, whether it's in the industry or through clients um, or test audiences or what have you, um, or festival goers for that matter. Um, you know, it's uh, it's worth the journey.
1: And that was my conversation with Larry Bafia. You can find out more about Larry's work at the Center for Digital Media at thecdm.ca. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits, as well as additional production support by Michael Edland. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.